At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, God, we are here today to bring you an offering of praise, to worship you because that is what you are due. God, today we thank you for life change. We thank you for the reality of a changed life, a changed eternity because of what you have done in our lives. God, we celebrate today with Rinsey and Baram with Alexander and Samuel in the first service, God. We rejoice because you have redeemed them and they have proclaimed to us that reality. God, thank you. Thank you that you are at work in our lives, that you are at work in our church, God. And God, as a church, we stand upon the foundation of your word. And so as we open your word, God, we invite you to do a work in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, God, that you might mold us and shape us, that you might strengthen us for the journey ahead. The fact of the matter is many of us are walking through incredibly difficult seasons right now, and we need your word. We need you to speak truth into our lives, God. And so as we open your word, God, would you give us eyes to see it clearly? We ask that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word clearly and then humble hearts before you that you might do your work in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I would like to begin our time together today by asking you a few questions. Are you guys ready? Are you guys ready? All right, how many of you began the day with a wonderfully exhilarating, lukewarm shower? It wasn't hot, wasn't cold, it was just sort of, okay. How many of you like, all right. How many of you then went downstairs, perhaps, or into the kitchen and brewed yourself a nice cup of lukewarm coffee? If that wasn't good enough, maybe you said, you know what, I think I want some eggs today. I'm going to make some lukewarm eggs. I'm guessing that most of us, if that was your morning, would not count that as success. You would not say you're off to a great start. Those, in fact, might be disappointing things to you. And I'm guessing the reality is that many of us today are not thinking, you know what, Pastor, I hope you wrap this thing up soon because I want to go get a lukewarm brunch. (laughs) Most of us prefer things either hot or cold. 
not this middle ground stuff. Most of us appreciate things with a little bit of conviction. And the fact is, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a portion of God's word that helps you and I see and not only kind of appreciate the reality of what conviction will do in our lives as we pursue and follow after Jesus. You see, Mark's gospel is our text, and if you're not familiar with Mark's gospel, it is uh, the shortest of all gospels in the scriptures. It's the shortest gospel account, and that's going to be what we are going to learn from today. Now, as we begin, it is crucial that I remind you what I reminded you of last week, that the significance of what we look at in the rest of Mark takes place in Mark chapter 1. This is where Jesus declares his purpose at the very beginning of his ministry. Here's what Jesus proclaims. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Simply put, what Jesus is saying there is the wait is over. The Messiah has arrived and you are looking at him. That's what he is saying in this moment. And because of that reality, the best and the most accurate response is to do what he advises. To repent and to believe, to trust in the good news of salvation in Christ. That's what we celebrated just a moment ago, the reality of that in the lives of two adults. Now, last Sunday, we dove into chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. This series is kind of working through chapters 3, 4, and 5. And we began by examining the life of Christ and the significance of when he begins with that vision in chapter 1, then you see it take place in chapters 2 and 3 and so on. And what we're looking at in the series is the significance of the reign of Christ in our world. And that's why we are calling this series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be picking up uh, this story at verse 20. Verse 20. Now, I want to warn you, uh, this is a little bit of a different reading. So track with me, and we'll kind of unpack it together, okay? You'll find it on page 838 in our ESV translation Bibles. And uh, track along with me. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Here's what Mark writes. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? For if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And so he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's where we're going to stop. You know, the truth is what we just read is one of the more intense and often misunderstood portions in all of Scripture. That is a portion of Scripture that oftentimes when we turn to it and we look at it, it can kind of bring a significant measure of fear in our hearts. Have I done that? It is my hope today that during this time together, looking at God's word, considering the word of God, that you will have a solid understanding of this very important text and have real true clarity on what it means to walk consistently and with conviction with Jesus. That's my hope for today. Now, as we dig in more deeply, we're going to be handling this biblical text in a little bit of a different way. I said that as you read it, we're going to unpack it. And what I highlighted there was the reality of something uh, is that this portion of Scripture is actually broken into different segments. This is a literary technique called sandwiching. I'm just going to be honest. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about sandwiches because it is almost noon. I don't want you to be thinking about lunch too soon. Basically, what I want to just say about sandwiching is it means that Mark begins one story, pauses, slides in another story in the middle, kind of like the cold cut, and then closes it out once again by returning to the original story. That is sandwiching, and that is what's going on in our text. So, let's take a little bit of a deeper look by looking at the meat, not the beginning, Not the end. We're going to look at the meat. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of the eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, I suppose that is one response to Jesus. You see, the scribes were professional experts in religious law. They knew the law, they taught the law, they sought to practice the law in their own lives and make no mistake about it, they had seen and heard plenty about Jesus. They knew that he was healing people. They heard of the vision that he was casting of this new kingdom that has come and they saw with great clarity the power that was on display. Jesus is in this moment a threat to the religious establishment. So what's their response? They respond with threats. They respond with dark, evil, lying threats against the supernatural work of God that is happening in and through Jesus. They attribute Jesus' ministry and the authority from which everything is happening, they attribute that as demonic. What Jesus was doing, they suggested, was the work of evil spirits. But Jesus responds by doing something that he is still at work doing today. He challenges their false religious assumptions. He challenges it. He does so with parabolic language. He speaks of a kingdom and he speaks of a house. Now the likely reference there, uh, scholars will tell you, is to the royal dynasty that we read about in the Old Testament. And the kingdom is divided and it cannot stand. We see that story throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus concludes this parable if and says if he is performing exorcism as an agent of the devil, then Satan would be divided against himself. And Satan would in fact be casting out Satan. It's weird, right? Right? Okay, good. Just want to make sure you're tracking with me. Makes no sense. Conversely, what does make sense is the reality that Jesus is overturning the work of the evil one by his earthly reign. That's what's happening. Jesus makes that clear in the next sentence. He says, truly, which means amen in the original Greek, all sins will be forgiven, even blasphemy. But Jesus says there's one sin. There's one sin that carries eternal guilt when one blasphemes the Holy Spirit. What Lake family, you know I talk about context a lot. If there is one portion of Scripture where context matters, it is right here. It is this one. You see, the scribes have attributed the work of God to the work of the demonic. They have called the Holy Spirit's work the activity of Satan. This is the ultimate rejection of God and the ultimate rejection of Jesus as Messiah. 
We see that when they said of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. You see, that was a way of attributing his ministry to the work of the demonic. And this, friends, is the ultimate rejection of the Messiah, and that is the unforgivable sin. One theologian explains it this way. It's kind of a long quote, so I want you to track with me here. He says, for a thief, for an adulterer, for a murderer, there is, in fact, hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. But when a man has become hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to any of the promptings of the Holy Spirit, he has placed himself on a road that leads to perdition. For anyone who is truly penitent, no matter how shameful his transgressions, there's no reason to despair. You see, Jesus' words in this portion of Mark when he responds to the scribes, they ought to bring you both a challenge and a measure of comfort. It is both a challenge and a comfort. It's a challenge because it begs you and I to consider, every person who reads this text, it begs us to consider, do I truly know Jesus as my Savior? Have I surrendered everything all of it to him? Have I repented of my sin? Have I turned from it? And do I believe in the good news of Jesus? That's the challenge. And then we have the comfort. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, those of us who have repented of sin and believed in the gospel, those of us who trust in him as Messiah, for all who have surrendered control of our lives unto Jesus, this gives you and me great comfort. Comfort because no matter how serious our transgression, Jesus says, you're forgiven. You are forgiven in me. And that truth should bring great comfort to all who believe. But it also shows us the first of two ways today that Jesus compels us towards a commitment to him. The way he compels us to conviction. And the first one is by challenging our religious assumptions. You see, Jesus challenges our religious assumptions. It's not by our good behavior. It is not by kindness to others. It is not even by good doctrine. Those things are all great and important. But it is the love of Jesus modeled through the forgiveness that he offers to you and to me upon the cross. That is what compels men and women and children to lives of faith, to lives of conviction. It's the love of Christ. It's the love of Jesus that causes us to turn from our sin, to surrender the control, to acknowledge our need for Him. It's His love. So, the question for us to wrestle with in this moment have we done that? 
I don't care if you've been here 300 times or if this is the third time you've walked in our doors. This is a question that we all must wrestle with. Have we done that? Have we laid it down? Have we surrendered? Have we repented of our sin and believed upon Jesus? Perhaps today, perhaps right now is your moment. Right where you are, in the stillness of this moment, I want to encourage you to just pause, just just pause and quietly acknowledge that you're a sinner, you're in need of God's grace, and that you believe in the forgiveness that comes only in Christ. Church, that's the only way, that is the only way that you and I find comfort in this life and in the life to come. Now, let's return to Mark's gospel. Remember, we are looking at the sandwich text. We've already seen the meat. Now I want us to head to the outsides, all right? We're going to pick up the story again at Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 20, and then we're going to go ahead and skip down to verse 31. We've already looked at what Jesus engages with with the scribes. Now we're going to go and see a different group of people. Verse 20. And then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That means there is a lot of people there. And when the family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And skip down to verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking here, seeking you. They're here. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. You know, taking a quick look at that text, you might kind of shake your head a little bit. It might be humbling for some of us. You're like, man, I thought I had family issues. That's crazy. I mean, he's Jesus, and look at the conflict that he's got going on there. Religious scribes were one thing, but Jesus also had to overcome his own family. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. How's that for support? Truth is, they didn't show him support. They didn't encourage him. They didn't send him off with a hug. They certainly didn't submit to his work or to his mission. I'm going to take a quick aside here. I recall many years ago when uh, Bonnie and I sat down with our family members and we told them that God was calling me into pastoral ministry. That we would be resigning from my current job, moving across the country to go to seminary. The response was a mixed bag. Some were in favor, some were very encouraging, others not so much. How does Jesus respond to his family's interaction? He responds 
with questions. He always does that. <laughs> Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, for those of us who are parents in the room today, we might read this text and we go, wait a second, not sure I like that. It's a little intense. I don't like Jesus' response here. Seems disrespectful. Well, culturally, what we need to know is that he was doing in this moment is he was solidifying his identity and he was seeking allegiance. That's what was happening with these questions. We know this because of the way Jesus answers his own questions. He is seated among his people and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, right here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, he is, she is my sister, she is my mother. Right here. Those of you who are doing the will of God, but that does leave us with a massive question, doesn't it? What is the will of God? What is the will of God? Jesus told us earlier in chapter 3 that his followers might be with him and then they might be sent out. That is the will of God. That you might be with Jesus and that you might be sent out for Jesus on mission for Christ. If you are in Jesus today, that is your calling. That is the will of God for you, to be with Christ and then to be sent for him. You see, Jesus gives that answer, and that's the second way that he compels you and I to commitment and to greater conviction by reorienting our family loyalty. Jesus, in this moment, gives believers the truth of a new family. Now, oftentimes when I stand on the stage, I do it, Pastor Kevin does it. We often refer to you as our White Lake family, right? You guys heard us say that before? We do that because of our shared faith in Christ. If you are in Christ today, you are my brother or my sister. There's a familial connection that happens because of Jesus. And here's the wild part. It changes not only how we think, it changes how you and I should live. It should mess with us. You see, Christ followers, whether you're a man, you're a woman, you're a child, those of us who have repented of sin and believed in the gospel, we've trusted in Jesus, we have a new bond that becomes the foundation for an entirely new community. It is a new family. A new family. Now let's be real for a moment. I know some of us here do not necessarily have the best scenario when I mention the word family. Your family was a lot of pain for you. Some of us didn't really have much of a connection with our biological family. Some of us were hurt. Some of us were wounded. Some of us were even rejected by our earthly family. And for that pain, I stand before you and want to just say, I am so sorry. That is not the way it should be. But I also want to give you hope. 
I want to give you hope because there is hope in the gospel. There's a hope in the reality of the family of faith that you now have with other believers in this room. Other believers who call Woodside White Lake your home. People who are living with Jesus and who are sent on mission for Jesus. We are broken. We are messy. We bump each other and we bruise each other from time to time. And yet, we are family in Christ. You know, last Sunday, most of you know that I returned from a two-month sabbatical. My time away was incredibly refreshing. I told you that, that it was really good for my soul, kind of spiritually. It was good for me physically, emotionally, mentally, all those things. It was a great time for me and for my family. But the truth of what we're looking at today in this second point became real for us because it was legitimately hard not to be here. So much of our lives are connected with you and in your lives. And it was odd for us not to come and be with our church family. Now make no mistake, I I did go to other churches while I was on sabbatical. Now I'll just be honest with you, some of that was really cool. We had a a good experience. Some of it was interesting. (laughs) But what it reminded me of was kind of like going to that extended family reunion. I know these people are my family but like they're my second cousin on my dad's side or something like that. Like I don't know who they are, but they're my family. That was a little bit like what this experience was like for for me and for us. We know we're part of the community, but our close-knit community, Woodside, White Lake, that is where our family loyalty lies as you and I pursue Christ together. Now, as we close, I want us to reflect upon the two ways that Jesus compels us to commitment, to compels us to conviction. He does so by challenging our religious assumptions. And he also does that by changing our family loyalty. You see, Jesus does those things because his reign calls you and I to ultimate allegiance. His reign calls you and I to ultimate allegiance. White Lake family, that means there is no middle ground. There is no kind of halfway. There is no lukewarm. The call of Jesus compels all who follow him to do so with conviction. With conviction. Because that's how God's kingdom reigns in my life and in yours. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.